you know, it's it's just in our blood, right? You know, we're all uh, we're all protectors, right? We like to kind of put an end to bullying, and you can do that as a as a military person, or you can do that as a law enforcement officer. So it's a it's an easy fit for a lot of guys coming out of the military. Hey guys, check out the 2023 Street Cop Conference, April 23rd through the 28th, Gaylord Convention Center. It's going to be the event of the year. Keynote speakers include Rob O'Neill, the guy who killed Bin Laden, Kyle Carpenter, the youngest living Medal of Honor recipient, Navy SEAL Jason Redmond, Fox News host Tommy Laren, Marine Corps Special Forces and Leadership Coach Cody Alford, Sheriff Wayne Ivey, Sheriff David Clark, and Sheriff Mark Lamb. It's going to be one hell of an event. And on top of that, we have all of our instructors and additional instructors from other companies going to be at the event, giving you everything they know for you to have a successful career and get the results you want to get in the field as a police officer. On top of attending the event, you'll get face-to-face time with every instructor attending the event, and all the keynote speakers will spend time with you. we got special events all week, giveaways, nightlife. It's going to be really, really worth your time, energy, and effort. I promise you, you will not regret it for a second. To register for the conference, check out streetcop.com, click conference, and everything you need will be there on the homepage. If you are looking for a room, just click book a room. The block has been sold out at the Gaylord Opryland Convention Center but there are many hotels nearby within a walking distance of the event. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity. We will see you there. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Street Cop Training Podcast. We're your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. Today I have with us Nick Norris. He's the fucking man. I'll let him give you his background. We're going to talk about cool shit today, important stuff, mental health. But Nick, I appreciate you being here today. I was just giving Nick a little dissertation on my night before. It is my second podcast of the day. So, dude, tell us about you, man. I know you got a crazy fucking background, cool shit. Guys, you're a real somebody, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, I'm, I I guess I'm somebody to some people. Um, but uh, somebody yeah, to dude, me, Nick I... Norris. You're somebody to me, Nick Norris. <laughs> Guy's got one well, of those all... contagious smiles you'll ever see. That's all that matters to me right now, my friend. Yeah, bro. I I grew up in Chicago, uh, blue collar community, a lot of uh, law enforcement and firefighters. My family were all firefighters. Um, My wife's family were all firefighters. We've been with each other since high school and uh, ended up going to the Naval Academy, um, graduated from school in 2003. And then I served in the SEAL teams uh, post-training from 03 to 2013. Um, It's amazing. Deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, during the height of uh, kind of wartime years, and then uh, transitioned out of the military uh, in 2013. And I've been uh, an entrepreneur, I guess. I've uh, started a couple CPG companies, and uh, I own a commercial real estate firm. That's what I transitioned into originally, of all things. Uh, not the the most uh, logical fit for a former SEAL, uh, but it, it's been good. Um, and and a big part of my life right now, brother, as I mentioned briefly is is mental health awareness and you know i've i've been very open about sharing my personal struggles and you know i i just want to serve as an example um and, and maybe a beacon of light for for guys whether they're veterans or law enforcement um or anybody else in the world that's that's out there struggling and uh find a little bit of hope so so we can put an end to the mental health epidemic and suicide epidemic that that we're facing right now yeah, at least hopefully put a dent in it for the time. Totally. Being, try to try to plug this fucking thing up a little bit. It's it's, it's insane. It's all it's all we can do, right? You, you may take action to have an impact, and you know that's it's better than taking no action at all, right? 
Dude, I've met so many Navy SEALs, and like I know what questions not to ask you because it's the same fucking questions that people ask you every time they find out you're a Navy SEAL. Like, how hard was Buds? Right? Like, uh, oh yeah, for sure. I'm happy. Hey, ask away, my friend. I'm I'm totally open to whatever you want to ask. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of the same questions, right? I think leading into the discussion of how you got to a place of you were dealing with your own struggles yep. is interesting. You know, I think everybody always has interest in Buds. You know, yep. and I hear from a lot of the guys, I'm friends with a lot of Navy SEALs, uh, Marine Raiders, Force Recon, basically because of the nature of the business that we're in. We have this podcast. It's law enforcement. It's synonymous with military. Christ, half the cops in the country were in the military. Some of them yep. were special forces. You ever seen a video? We got to get the guy on who uh, sh- you ever seen a video, Frank? There's a guy who gets re- he responds to a, an active shooter or somebody shooting in the street. If you've never seen this one, Nick, you got to look at this. He okay. pulls up. He was drinking a cup of coffee. He puts it on the dashboard of the car, pops out, walks around the back of his car, throws his lift gate open on his fucking on his Tahoe, takes his M4 out, charges it, sets the sight, pulls it up, and hits the guy like 160 yards one shot. And like literally back from before he's doing that, you'll hear is like pop, 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 pop. He takes it out, cool. It doesn't even fall. You can hear him breathing. He's like, he might have been wussing like. Yeah, right? he could be doing that. Totally. Hits, thing out, hits it, and all you hear is like, he's like, uh, whatever his call sign is, hey, one man down, one down. Shots fired, <laughs> one down. Yeah. See? So that dude is cool under pressure, and he uh, likely spent time in Iraq or Afghanistan. So he was, yeah, so that's what I said to these guys, and I say it in class all the time. <laughs> we found out he's special forces. So he was special forces guy that became a cop, and that's not uncommon. Yep. There's a lot of cops no, who were special forces. Green Berets and, and Force Recon and Raiders and I haven't really met many SEALs that have gone into law enforcement that I haven't seen, but other branches of the service that were special forces, a lot of them end up as cops, which is interesting to me. I mean, it's a, it's an easy fit, right? I mean, a lot of uh, veterans will go into like contracting and when, you know, when contracting was, was really hot and heavy. Um, but I think since some of that stuff has dried up, you see a lot of guys go into law enforcement because, you know, it's, it's just in our blood, right? You know, we're all, uh, we're all protectors, right? We like to kind of put an end to bullying. And you can do that as a as a military person, or you can do that as a law enforcement officer. So it's a it's an easy fit for a lot of guys coming out of the military. What are some things that people don't know about being a Navy SEAL that often surprises them? And I don't know if I I hate to sound so fucking cliche, dude, but it's like for my You're own personal. You're not, bro. <laughs> well, hey, I'll, so I'll speak for myself. Uh, m- most guys that make it through are not massive dudes. Uh, it actually is more beneficial to be a little guy going through training. So I'm, I'm five, six. I mean, I'm maybe I'm 165 pounds now, so I'm not a big person. I think when I went through buds, I was a hundred and I mean, I finished buds at like 150 pounds. I just like wasted away. But, uh, most team guys are, are kind of smaller dudes because the training requires that you're, you know, going through buds, you're running a lot. So, being resilient to stress fractures and carrying less weight actually gives you a higher uh, probability of success making it through selection. So a lot of people think that it's uh, it's all like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura from Predator, right? Like 240 pounds and just jack. Now are, there are guys like that, and they are uh, an absolute uh, necessity when you're carrying heavy weapons and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of the guys are smaller and a lot of people think that we're all big dudes, but we're, we're, we're little guys. Not no, on a heart, SEAL team, 
<laughs> I see it. So they're different like positions. Like uh, were you, uh, or was everybody trained universally? Uh, so yeah, there's, you definitely uh, serve in a role, right? So like I was an, I got commissioned out of the Naval Academy. I went through buds as an officer. And then uh, as I went into a SEAL platoon, you know, I was an element leader. Now, you know, we look at leadership throughout the ranks. So it doesn't matter if you're the officer, uh, senior officer, you're the most junior enlisted, you know, we demand leadership uh, at every level. But, you know, my job was to be a leader. And, and that meant, you know, kind of keeping my head uh, above everything else, coordinating, making sure that I was supporting everybody in our element to be able to, you know, make us more effective. And then, you know, the, the, the platoon or the the squad is broken down into roles. You know, we have breachers, you have snipers, you have uh, communicators. So everybody will specialize. But I will tell you that like the the unique thing about the SEAL teams is that we all go through the same selection process. Whether you're an officer or an enlisted personnel, you are you train together, you're selected together. And I think some of the fundamental kind of tenacity and capability physically and mentally is universal uh, across the ranks. It doesn't matter, you know, who you are, you know, you have an, an innate ability to kind of persevere through adversity and you have a, you know, an innate ability to kind of shoot, move and communicate at the most basic level. So yeah, I, I there's specialization, but at the same time, we do have some fundamental similarities. Dude, give me two really good bud story. And we're going to go through this piece by piece. It's not going to just be there's a buds fucking conversation. But <laughs> so I think, good, I, think brother. I think we deserve two good bud stories. Uh, okay, two good bud stories. And by the way, I, it could either be, I mean, you could pick it. doesn't have to be like this one time. Like you could be like, hey, man, I, I had fucking my broke my right toe and then I had to carry a boat. And like, but two <laughs> ones that like people like people are just like your friends are like, damn, Nick, that's fucking crazy. Well, I mean, hey, so uh, one that's like a funny fact um, that maybe people, this is like people don't realize that SEALs are, are for the most part, smaller people. Um, when you're going through BUDS, the hardest thing about BUDS is it's cold, right? We get put in cold water. That's why people quit. You know, the Pacific Ocean, regardless of what time of year it is, is is never very warm. And uh, <laughs> you get very used to urinating on each other which is not something that people realize or you look you, you're like you hear it and you're like dude that is really fucked up but you know the the feeling of somebody pissing on you is only comfortable when you're like neck deep in 60 degree water for like 20 or 30 minutes then you don't really care dude like i actually would applaud dudes if like you're sitting on the beach you know jackhammering cuz like you've been freezing your ass off in the pacific and uh you feel like this this warm like wave of comfort you know as you're sitting there kind of nut the butt with a bunch of your friends and it's the only time in my life i've actually been thankful that somebody pissed on me and i haven't had anybody piss on me since then which is a good thing well listen don't yuck other people's yums i mean if you like people paying on you that's fine it'll make you feel I mean, weird fine, dude. hey no judgment right i mean we accept so much in this world right now so oh for sure dude <laughs> For sure. And dude, you know, listen, I'm not trying to compare buds to police academies, but you know, there are, I don't know when you're a, a dude and like you get situations, like it's weird how much a lot of that shit goes out the window of what you give a fuck about. Like oh, when yeah. you're trying to do something, even in academy, some of the academies I went to were, were more difficult. And you know, the fact of the matter is some of that shit was weird, but like, yeah. we just did it. Like, dude, I mean, Here's one that you don't 
like expect. Like I remember our first academy, they were fucking nuts. Uh, at least for the first couple of weeks. And you know, you know these guys for like two, three weeks now that you're friends. And we go to our so this is pre-academy, we go to our post-academy, you know, now our formal academy. And um, dude, we're getting yelled at naked, right? Like we're like, they're like, get the showers. I'm like, we're standing there like holding a bar of soap in our left hands, a towel in our right hands, and standing in like a line. And like now these are your friends, and you're all fucking naked together. Uh, all right, so back to pissing on men. All right. So that, I mean, that's a hey, funny little known fact. Um, on a serious note, I mean, I probably have shared this one before. Um, you know, my biggest, <laughs> so my biggest, I guess, superpower, or, or, or I think for a lot of guys from our community is our ability to innately compartmentalize. So like, and I think you, you see it, I mean, Hey, hence your story about the guy that set his coffee down and then, you know, uh, hammered a guy down at six, 160 yards. Right. Uh, cool as a cucumber, able to compartmentalize emotion immediately. So works really well in a like high stress scenario. Doesn't not the best thing to have as you kind of believe active duty service, but <laughs> I, I remember, yeah, it's like the worst, right. And we could go into that in, in more depth, uh, later in the conversation, but I remember going and doing a long PT in buds, you know, so it's whatever, six to eight of us on this big, I don't know, 200 pound log. And you know, literally had like everybody in my boat crew, except for like maybe two or three guys quit during the middle of the log PT. So we're carrying this thing up and over sand dunes and we're, you know, doing PT with it. We get to the point where we're just failing. We're at like physical exhaustion. And, you know, the instructor's there to kind of like, the cadre wants to test you, right? So they don't add anybody to the log. By the end of the the, the log PT, there's probably three of us trying to carry this log. And you've already been getting beat down for like two and a half, three hours. So like physically couldn't even like pick the log up and we're just getting like, just beat down. And I remember completely losing it, um, you know, carrying the log off the beach and having to, <laughs> I mean, ba basically I just like lost control of my emotions and it, and it resonates with me because I was embarrassed, right? Like I lost my cool. I'm yelling at dudes. I'm like, and it's not my personality, right? It's like, yeah, you just, you, you suffer in silence. You, you're a professional. You put your, you know, finish the the tough evolution and you move on to the next one. And I did not do that. And it, it has been like etched in my mind. And I think from that point forward, I mean, for me, I think that was where like the mental compartmentalization of emotion like started. Cause I was so embarrassed after the fact that I lost my shit that I just, I, I learned, I mean, like, Hey, I need to like lock this shit away. And I, and frankly, I don't know if it was like premeditated by the instructor staff to kind of get me to that point, but super thankful for it. I mean, it was literally the thing that kind of drove me to be a better operator and, and leader in high stress scenarios. Um, but yeah, it definitely was a point where like, I literally didn't think I could make it through like literally, like I thought that like, you know, to quit, I would physically need to be like, okay, I'm freezing. I'm putting my hand up and I'm going to quit. I never thought that there would be something physically so arduous during training that I just couldn't physically complete it because I was, I was in fairly good shape, but I literally got to my breaking point. I mean, physically incapable of like literally picking the log up off the ground. And uh, yeah, definitely a formidable point in, in my time as a student in training. So why didn't you quit? What did you tell yourself? I mean, you just don't, right? I mean, for me, 
I think it was the, the, the thought of letting everybody down that didn't have the opportunity to go into training because I, I came out of the Naval Academy. There were 16 of us that got selected out of a class of, I mean, call it, I think we're probably 850, 900 students that graduated, you know, maybe wow. 700 are males. So out of that 700, 16 of us got to go to BUDS. So it was wow. a privilege to go to selection. And the thought of, of, of letting down one of those guys that had to go serve aboard ship for two or three years and then maybe fight their way back to selection, it would have been embarrassing for me. I mean, I literally, you know, I kind of had gone through this mental exercise of, okay, let's fear set and and take it back to like, if I quit, how would I feel? What would I do? You know, would I ever be proud to tell people that I graduated from the academy? Uh, would I be proud to, you know, be part of the service? Like, I mean, that stuff was so mortifying for me that I just, it became kind of like a non-choice if if you understand what I'm where I'm going with that. Yeah, no, I get it, dude. And that's interesting that you say that because uh, you just don't. It's really, from in my mind, it's like goes on a <laughs> t-shirt. It's a really profound statement, three words. Like you just don't, you yeah. don't quit. So, dude, um, let's move forward to like some of your experiences in the field. I guess some of this stuff's classified, but. You know, maybe maybe a story or two because people like hearing this shit about some fucked up shit that went on uh, in your days. Like, how many missions did you guys go on? Like, a countless amount of missions during that time—ten years. I I mean, so I was deployed in uh, like '06 the first time around, and then uh, I was in Afghanistan in 2010. So yeah, I mean, the the battle rhythm for us, and I'm I I frame this as I was like I was like the atypical, or at least atypical from what I thought being in the SEAL teams was going to be like. You know, we we operated at night uh, to a certain degree, but we had to support uh, counterinsurgency doctrine. And at the time, especially in like 06, it was like daylight combat operations, which was like not what you thought you'd be doing as a special operations guy. So, I mean, we did, I think my first deployment, I mean, we, we probably were 60, 70 uh, operations uh, during the course wow. of a you know, six to seven month deployment. And a lot of that stuff is like, you know, daylight patrol to, to like presence patrol with like a Marine Corps unit or something like that. So it wasn't just like going in and hitting a house at night. It, a lot of it was, you know, strapping it on and walking out in broad daylight with a partner force, like an Iraqi partner force and a Marine like battalion sized element. And basically walking around an area to like show that we occupy it until you get contacted by an insurgent force. And then you're like returning fire, you know, strongholding a building and then like, you know, leapfrogging into another area until you've broken contact. So um, I experienced a lot of that. It was like a big wake up call for me as a, a young SEAL officer. Uh, my first combat operation as a as a young guy like literally came you know came into our area of operations and i was told by you know our uh platoon commander and troop commander like hey you're you're supporting this marine corps element they're north of the euphrates river they live i mean the marines i mean i, I say this every time but i'll emphasize it the marines that i deploy or that i fought alongside during that deployment some of the most courageous guys that I have served in combat alongside. I mean, literally they were infantry Marines and they lived in squalor 
they they were in like a cluster of buildings surrounded by hescos which are like our like kind of expedient earthen barriers and they got mortared every single day i mean i think like the the month we showed up they got hit they had like 120 impacts within the wire um during the month of uh whatever it was like may or whatever so just bad badass dudes and you know can't say enough good things about them uh so like i went out there brand new guy junior officer show up i'm like hey sir like to the major like what can we do to support you guys he's like well we're going out on a patrol you know in a few hours you know i take your guys and we'll we'll take you out and we'll we'll go patrol so literally uh we're 250 meters outside the front gate patrolling through like an open farm field and and granted like that area uh in, near the euphrates in iraq is like super green like it's not desert it like literally looks like you're in southeast asia like it's like rice paddy type grass like flooded farm fields you know palm groves everywhere you know it, it's it's totally uh different than what you expect so we're hike we're patrolling through this field um, and we're in a big like echelon formation, you know, there's a hundred dudes to our right, another 50 dudes to our left. And like, literally, I mean, it was like out of a movie, like we have an IED go high order about probably 50 feet behind my rear security, who was a reservist that was, uh, connected to us. And like, it's like a straight up like movie explosion because the, the ID had sunk into the earth so far that it kind of like tamped down the explosion and it just shot this dirt plume in the air that was like super hollywood uh like you know i mean because like an explosion on the surface like if you have if you know anything about ex like high explosives dude it looks like a flash right there's no fireball like th there's no like big cloud or anything it's just like a flash and it's over but this thing was like literally raining dirt on us like i remember like like you're like oh my god like I, what the hell just happened i remember like put, like bounding into the next house and then like we took you know taking automatic weapons fire and it's like my wake up call right first time i've ever like gone outside the wire and we're getting like you know we have automatic weapons like you know impact around our position and i got a dirt plume behind me cuz some ied went off uh behind us so uh Definitely not what I was expecting, um, but but that was kind of like how the beginning of that deployment um, started until we we started kind of morphing our uh, rules, not rules of engagement, but the way that we were executing in or in support of the Marines. We started actually being a little bit more proactive and utilizing some of our sniper capability um, and just our ability to kind of get into places like at night and hide like in buildings and then be there to kind of provide overwatch or security for some of these larger like iraqi and marine corps elements that were doing patrols up there because you know the first part of the deployment was like literally just like that story it was go out wait until you get attacked and then react to their attack which is not what you want to do on a regular basis like you want to figure out a way to take the upper hand and uh we, we figured out how to do that in time but it definitely uh was was a surprise to me going out there for the first time did you get more calm the more you endured combat? Yeah, you, I mean, you definitely do, right? It's like anything else. I think the more you're exposed to something, you start to stress inoculate. But, you know, there is the dynamic of like when I first went over um, that, that first 06 deployment, 
you know, you, you kind of, I mean, you're bred in the teams through selection and training to be like a, like invincible, right? Like you win, you win all the time. Like that's just your mindset. There is no, there is no alternative to that. And you're never going to quit. So you feel like you're kind of a superhero. Like you go, you go into those gnarly situations and like you kind of can just deal with it from inception because you've been bred that way. You know, you've been kind of stress inoculated and programmed. And, you know, I will say there was kind of this, like this inflection point where, you know, I was super comfortable even right from inception. But then we had, uh, you know, we had a seal, the first seal killed in, uh, in Iraq, in our sister troop, uh, a guy named Mark Lee was killed in Ramadi. And when Mark was killed on that deployment, I mean, it was like a sobering moment. I mean, for everybody, right? Like you're, you're going out there thinking that you are unstoppable and invincible and that these, you know, these rounds aren't even rounds, right? You're, you're like, you kind of treat them like they're blank fire and you just kind of do your job and, and execute. And, you know, after that, I, I remember, you know, kind of feeling the weight of, of leadership, you know, to a certain degree, you know, knowing that like, Hey, you know, we've had a bunch of close calls and everybody's survived so far. And you start, you know, he, I, there was definitely a period of time where I'm like, man, I'm like, it weighed on me heavier. I almost like, kind of like took, like I regressed. I, I feel like for a little bit, because I, I maybe got, I was starting to get cautious, more cautious than I needed to be, um, you know, until I kind of started to get back into that rhythm and felt comfortable again. But yeah, I mean, a long answer to your question, you know, it, it, I think the training that we go through is so good that it inoculates us well, but you know, there is that moment in, in real combat where, you know, you realize that this isn't just a game, right? Like, like there is serious, uh, there are serious consequences on the table. And then coping with that, I think then there's like this this longer tail ramp up to get truly more comfortable um, knowing the gravity of of what's at stake. Did you love your time in the Navy SEALs? Oh yeah, I mean, I dude, I, there's nothing, there's nothing else in the world like it. Um, and I, and I'd say that's the camaraderie that you feel in a combat arms profession. Uh, you know, it, it being being a SEAL, that was my experience. But I could tell you, I mean, I'm I'm sure it's synonymous with any other branch of service that went into combat. And and frankly, you know, I, and I say this to some close friends of mine, actually a very close friend of mine who's a law enforcement officer in Chicago. And dude, I mean, it's it it's it's no different, man. You're carrying a gun and you're doing you're doing dangerous stuff and you're going up against bad dudes that that want to take your life. Like you feel a sense of camaraderie in that in law enforcement or in the military that is uh it cannot be easily replicated in this world because there's not a lot of situations or careers that put you in a situation where you know your life is on the line or the lives of people around you are on the line. So I mean, yeah, that dude, it's like a it's addictive, right? That's the why people that's why people do it. It's not for the money, right? People spend a career in the military or law enforcement, because I think they get addicted to that, that, that feeling of camaraderie and kind of like the high stakes nature of the job. Um, yeah. I mean, it's wonderful, man. I mean, I, some of my closest relationships that I have, uh, were forged in my time during the SEAL teams. Who do you guys fear more on the SEAL teams, uh, at this time? Was it Saddam Hussein or 
Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, who caused more carnage. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Dude, I mean, I. <laughs> I mean, like now, like I think there are more people being killed in Chicago than oh, probably dude, totally. Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the in the in the height of the war, right? I mean, people. I mean, the Iraq and Afghanistan were all over the news, but we used to laugh. Because I'd be like, I think more people were murdered this summer than died in like southeastern Afghanistan. Like brutal, right? It's a battlefield. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you another story. I remember coming back in 06 from deployment. And I, for some reason, I had to go up to Los Angeles uh, for something. I never, I live in San Diego. So I like, I'm ne- I never go north just because it's like horrible traffic. Like I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. But dude, I got off at the wrong exit in LA and like, I, dude, I could have swore I was back in like Chaldea, Iraq. Like it was like, I mean, my spidey senses were like lit up. I mean, I, I, dude, it was like super gnarly. So if people want to know what it's like going overseas, just go into an area like, I mean, in Chicago or Los Angeles or, or, or New York. And uh, dude, there's dangerous places in this country. Like, don't, (laughs) you can't take it lightly. And that's why I have such, like deep respect for the law enforcement community, because like literally you are going into areas that are as dangerous, if not more dangerous because of the, the restrictions that are placed upon our, our law enforcement officers. And like, literally like you have, you basically are at a disadvantage the entire time. Like you don't, you don't get to take the tactical advantage, right? Like you have to literally be there and put yourself in very compromising situations. So like I, I always, uh, you know, tell my my friend Mike uh, Hurley is a is a Chicago uh, police officer, grade school friend, the guy that actually got me interested in the SEAL teams. Mike served in the Marine Corps, and I always tell him because he's like self deprecating, right? He'll never, he'll never let anybody know. Like he's like he's never gonna pat himself on the back. He's always telling me like how proud he is to be a friend of mine. And I'm like, dude, I, you do a, a, you have a tough job, bro. And like, I always will, will tell you that you got the tougher job than I had. So yeah, I'm, uh, I, I can't say enough, man, about um, what our law enforcement have to deal with nowadays. Like it's, it's brutal. Your hand, your hands are tied. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the street cop podcast, do us a favor and go with, give us a review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to us, tell a friend, we don't charge anything for the episodes. We appreciate your support. Check us out on any social platform by putting into the search bar street cop training. Give us a follow. We have a lot of free content coming out every single day that you might not catch here on the podcast. And it's important for you to be able to do your job more professionally. And we also entertain you as well. Dude, so in 2004, I uh, ended up taking a job in Washington, D.C. as a police officer, right? Now, I had never been to D.C. in my life. I never forget coming over the, one of the bridges there, like the 15th Street Bridge or something. And the guy who was driving our van that was carting us around. He was a sergeant. They put like they put like 12 of us in a van. It's half the class. They had two vans. They pick it up as the hotel. And uh, I remember driving over thinking, I'm like, oh, my God, that's the fucking thing from the $5 bill right there. It was the Jefferson Memorial, right? Yeah, like, yeah, Oh, yeah. my God, I've never seen this stuff. Like, it's crazy, bro. Like. He's like, you never saw this shit. I'm like, nah, nah. But I remember coming out of after going through the academy, coming out. I was in field training, and I worked Southeast DC for my first field training rotation. And dude, Southeast DC is fucking wild. And I remember the first day I was there. Now, dude, what people don't realize about Washington DC is the city was designed to fool or trick invading troops. 
Totally. Which brother. I'm sure in 19 <laughs> in, in 1793 this was super important. But in 2004, as a police officer, my third year in law enforcement, <laughs> I have no I've never been here in my life. Dude, it's wild. It's really hard to figure out. There's no GPS, right? I think Tom Toms at the time and like those Garmin systems, dude, they were like a, they were like eleven hundred bucks, right? You could nobody yeah. had them. Um, you know, and I you were always like, man, should I just get one of these things? I had a I'm not kidding you, Nick. I used to drive around. Um, because the easiest map to read was the one the National Park Service had of yep. DC. That was the easiest. Okay. I, I had this MPS like brochure map that you can get at any stand along the National Mall, and that's how you used to get around town. But I remember the first night I'm out, and uh, my field training officer Eduardo Delgado, who I haven't seen you know in in 18 years, obviously 19 years, he says to me, uh, "See this part of Southeast DC? He's like, you don't ever come here alone." And I, what do you mean? He's like, you can't, you got to come at least two, you need at least two cops to come in together into this area of the town. And I went, why? He's like, they'll take pot shots at your car, dude. He's like, you can't come in here. They shoot at police cars. And I remember the end of the night, he's like, do you have any questions? And I went, can we go over what part of town I'm not supposed to go in? Because I don't know where I am. And like, I don't want to end up there by myself, dude. And I got to tell you, dude, I still, by the time we graduated field training or finished that evolution of field training, I remember being a single guy in a car. We didn't ride doubles. I was a new, I was 22 years old, dude, you know, 22, sure. 23 years old, turning 23. Yep. And I'm cruising around the projects again. And I'm like, where did he say I shouldn't go? Right. I'm like, look real. And like, I'm calling up the place and I'm like, maybe this is one of those places where he, where he's like, I, he said, I shouldn't go dude. Like, it's crazy. Like a lot of us came there from New York. So you have a guy making a traffic stop. Then he's calling for a backup unit. And I'm like, I don't know where this dude is. Yeah, like, I know like, where I was like, I don't know where this guy is, bro. I'm like, I'm taking, I remember my friend Tim calling for a fucking, like a real backup. Like he was like significant, like, Hey, I need somebody right away. And I ran hot lights and sirens. And I'm like, I hope this is the quadrant I'm supposed to be in. And dude, like, <laughs> miracle of God. Yeah, dude. I ended up in the right quadrant and I saw his patrol car. And I had like, I never forget this like sense of relief pulling around the corner that I actually found him and he didn't need help. And I'm like, I didn't, I was like too proud to say that I like, where are, where am I? Anybody can help me out here. You know, we had yeah. 30, 40 cars on the road. I'm like, can anybody tell me where, like, where I'm supposed to be going for this kid? <laughs> so, dude, when you say that, bro, I, I've been in situations. I was on a traffic stop in South DC one time and I had this guy stopped. And, dude, I mean, I'm from fucking New Jersey, bro. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think anything's that bad here. You know, Newark's fucked up. Camden's insane, but I never went to these places, right? I'll never be on a traffic stop and just hearing. <laughs> and like i'm like and a dude on the traffic stop looks at me he's like you heard that and i'm like what is that he's like you don't know what that is i was like nah he's like it's a fucking shootout bro and i was like all right i'm like uh um here's your stuff back man just have a good one and i'm out there and i'm like it, dude it must be three blocks away from me and i'm like hey headquarters i'm a 22 year old kid i got a fucking i'm just like literally conveying this you could hear it over there i'm like there's shooting going on over here. But, dude, that was all day long. And they're like, yeah, all right, we'll send another unit out that way. And I'm like, yeah. If this was New Jersey, bro, we'd be bringing helicopters in. The state police <laughs> getting activated. Bro, it was crazy. People, you pull yeah. up the scenes, they're kicking shell casings around. Like, I'm not talking three. I'm talking their drive-bys were so significant. Dude be kicking around 80, 90 fucking shell, AK-4762 on the ground in the middle of the fucking yeah. street in D.C. Yeah, yeah. No, I believe it, man. I mean, people. People are oblivious to it, right? I mean, there are very dangerous places in this country. Uh, you, you, everybody doesn't live in a bubble. And uh, and there are very brave people that do a thankless job. 
every single day. Um, so, I mean, dude, I, I mean, this is my, I'll get off my soapbox in a second for my no, no, no. law enforcement, but I, Hey bro, I, I mean it sincerely. Like, dude, I, I seen, I mean, dude, I had, I mean, good friends of mine in Chicago, like they're just doing their job and having like frozen cans, shredded cans thrown at them, you know, because there's protests or something and they can't do anything about it. Right. They're to like sit there and like dudes are getting like cut up and, and like literally have to just be like passive and victims. And like, I just, to have to do that job and then take such deep criticism, you know, on a very consistent basis is just absurd. So I, I just, you know, I hope people realize that, you know, there are people out there, courageous people willing to do thankless jobs to make sure that we sleep safe at night. And that, that happens domestically. It's not just our military that are, that are out there doing that. Yeah, dude, it's, uh, it's trying at times. And, you know, we're hopeful that, uh, that there's going to be resolutions and solutions. And I, I, I think honestly, as weird as it sounds, um, I think there's a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of stuff is swinging back. I think people really, as, as, as sad as it is what law enforcement has gone through, I think at the same time it has bred in a really ungodly amount of law enforcement support. Yep. And I, I think people stuck in situations like that, especially naming police officers in, in situations like the ones you just described, they really get jaded because I think everybody hates them. They don't realize that they're like, yeah. you know, some of those beloved human beings on the on the planet, especially in this country. Totally. And just a quick side note, if you'd like to know what parts of the country the are the ones that Nick Norris is describing, you can go to a, a show called The First 48. And any show that they're filming active homicide investigations because there are so many, they don't even have to wait. These are probably a good indication of your cities of where you probably <laughs> don't want to be. Um, that's a good, it's a great place to start. It's a good, good hack. Good, good life hack for people to know. <laughs> they, they don't do You want to hear something crazy? Um, Patterson, New Jersey is a fucked up place, right? It's a really, it's a tough place. Um, I'm not saying there aren't good people there. I know for a fact that like when I first got in the police academy in 2001, I went to three of these things, but the first one I went to, they had just filmed cops there. So cops came and we did the Patterson ride along. And the guy actually, who was our instructor, ended up being the chief of Patterson, big agency. You know, I don't know how many, they got hundreds and hundreds of guys with five, 600 cops. And he told us at the time he was a sergeant and he's a good dude. So cops came out and rode with him because he was like a hard charger, right? And they were like all excited they're going to be on cops. And they actually wrote to them and said, we're not actually airing these episodes of cops. And they're like, why? And they're like, because it's just, it's too depressing and it's too much of a reality check for the rest of America to see where you guys actually work. It's just, wow. just not enough greenery. It's like, it's too fucking concrete. You guys deal with the craziest shit and we don't think people can handle it. No kidding. Right. Dude. That's what they were crazy. Told. That's, that's a real story. That's what, that's the story that he told us that they wouldn't even cops wouldn't even air what they saw in Patterson. That's how fucking nuts it was. Oh, I believe it. It's actually, I mean, it's kind of a good segue, bro. Like, what law enforcement deal with is, I mean, it's, it's frankly can be unbearable, bro. I mean, we, I, you know, I talk a lot about mental health and kind of emotional compartmentalization to do really tough jobs. And I have, I mean, since I've started kind of talking more about that, I have a lot of friends that are, are police officers and dude, I've had people come out of the woodworks, whether they're friends or just kind of total strangers that have heard me speak on some platform 
and just tell me how bad, you know, it's gotten and that like they're afraid, I mean, afraid to even like admit it or or seek help. But, you know, some of these guys have been living that for 20 plus years, 30 years, you know, in working in some very, very uh, tough areas to do that job in. And they carry such immense emotional like baggage that you just can't. I mean, dude, I served in the military active duty for 10 years, right? Some of these guys are on the job for 30 plus years. I got a chance to kind of decompartmentalize shit, you know, a few years ago that I was that was basically making me suffer, right? I, I got to kind of the 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 bottom of the the barrel for myself. And I needed it to kind of like unlock some of that stuff and actually open up and be a little bit more emotionally vulnerable. Some of these guys don't get a choice, dude. They they can't do it for 30 plus years. And like they're th- I mean, potentially three times as worse off as I was when I got to the 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 point where I was really struggling and I I reached out for help. And dude, th- th- that's like endemic. That's like all over the country. So like when I make that comparison between law enforcement and the military, like it's a real comparison, man, because like you know, these are careers. Like I'm now in a follow-on career where I'm not carrying a, a gun every day. And I am not in a situation where I need to emotionally compartmentalize to do my job, you know, to a certain degree. Um, it's just a different type of stress. But uh, yeah, man, I mean, I think that my my message is so relevant to the law enforcement community. And, you know, I, I, I want to make it very clear. I, I think that law enforcement communities across this country uh need to really double down on on their focus on mental health and and making sure that their their officers are 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 capable of coming forward and expressing some of the things that they're dealing with on the on the mental health side and not be stigmatized as broken or incapable of doing the job because they're willing to come forward and talk that's the problem brother like the 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 inability to share because of a fear of reper- uh, ramifications or repercussions is why guys don't talk and that's the reason why you know we have guys taking their their lives and uh you know i i i, I really would like i urge people um in in the law enforcement profession to to just step up and and kind of look for help when you need it you know, there have been some steps forward in addressing some of this stuff, and it's certainly a topic that is not foreign on this podcast. Um, New Jersey put something in place to get some real people with the right mindset trying to do great things for the state of New Jersey and its law enforcement officers. But what happens is because a lot of this is ran by complete morons, you're going to like this one. So I, I think and I could be wrong on this. I think that every department now has to have some kind of mental health liaison, something like that, right? So somebody in the rank and file who gets designated with this thing where they can they they took formal training, and if somebody is dealing with something and they want to come forward, this is the person they talk to. So let's talk about who they choose. I know of an agency that the person who went to that training was their internal affairs lieutenant. So oh, if you dude. want to come in, yeah, could you fucking imagine, dude? So the guy yeah. that you got to talk to is also the guy who's ready to lop your fucking head off. Well, bro, there's no trust, right? That was the biggest, I'll tell you, one of the biggest hurdles for for me and my friends uh, as it relates to kind of talking to somebody, like seeing a therapist, was like the ability to trust that person. 
like to build rapport. And it's tough, dude. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about like trusting any therapist, not in the situation you're talking about, which is like the internal affairs officer or, or agent that Lieutenant, is also yeah, the yeah. therapist. Yeah, dude, that's crazy, right? That's like, there's no trust there, right? Um, I so, I mean, finding an outsider that actually isn't in that type of a scenario is like requisite. You need to do it. And you need to find somebody that actually guys will trust that they'll be comfortable opening up to, or it's not going to happen. Hey, dude, it, it's wild. At least it's being talked about. And I think one of the most significant problems is the, this is a real thing for a lot of people. And, and I, I, we know there's a fix to it. And I, I have friends that are therapists, but the shortage of therapists with the, mm -hmm. you know, impending growing, you know, need for therapists and appropriate and certified ones. So when I say to these people that I know that are in the field and they are law enforcement or military therapists, quote unquote, for those who understand why there has to be certain therapists designated to help and support law enforcement, these people could take on like 30, 35 clients a week. We got 40,000 cops in the state of New Jersey to begin with, right? So yep. I see, you know, what do you do? How do you, how do you find more people? They go, there is nobody else. And dude, what's crazy is like, you call therapists, let's say you're going through something, you need to talk to somebody. I mean, good luck finding somebody, man. You, yeah. you can't even get, and I'll dissuade people from trying to find a therapist, but these are real issues. When I say to them, hey, why are there issues like this? They go, because of the amount of training that you need to get licensed. People just don't want to do it. They may want to help. And it just goes back to this whole theory of like why college is such bullshit, right? Schooling and education are two different things. Yeah. So do I think that somebody needs formal education to be able to be a uh, you know psychotherapist? And the answer is, of course. But I don't think you got to shove them through four years of bullshit college to get this certification. So, you know, unfortunately, dude, I just I was somewhere recently and I saw this college. Oh, I was driving. Oh, what the fuck was I driving to? I think it might have been Dallas. And this, you had to see the, the, the buildings at this college. I've never even heard of it before. And the stadium, and I'm like, I've never even heard of this college. It just goes to show you how much money they're generating that they almost don't know what to do with it. Yeah. At the expense of everybody else, man. We could really get to where we need to and get a lot of these. There are people who really want to help. But dude, take a guy like me. I want to help in mental therapy. Let's say I really I like it. I'm 41, staring down the pipe of 42. What am I going to four years of college? No, and another no. two years of post-college to try to six, seven years from now help some motherfuckers. Like it's not happening. Yeah. Here's my thought as it relates to the solution, right? Because I'm like, a, I'm a solution oriented type of person, right? You like, I don't both, like brother. to just, yeah, I'm not trying oh, to yeah. like uh, hypothesize. It's, I think it's bullshit. The ability for guys and gals to feel comfortable enough to kind of support each other, where it's, it's a mutually supportive uh, dynamic, is the only way that we, we get, we, we, we start to put a dent in the issue that we're dealing with right now. And I think it starts by, you know, people that are struggling being willing to open up and share, right? And like, I saw it, my personal experience was I was I was totally emotionally closed off. And dude, I would not tell anybody that I was struggling. But when I finally did, I got to my breaking point and I opened up to some other guys that I respected. Dude, it was reciprocated immediately from like an emotional vulnerability standpoint. Like vulnerability begets vulnerability not dissimilar to like emotional reaction begets emotional reaction. So I, I, I just like to encourage people like, Hey, if you're struggling, yeah. If you can get it, you find a therapist, find like a trauma trained professional that can really help you work through your shit. But 
you don't need that. Like you need to like immediately triage and say, hey man, if I can't find that person or I don't trust that person, go to the person that you trust. Like go to the person that you know you love or they love you and they would do anything for you. And I know those people exist for everybody. Some people may have more friends like that or loved ones than others, but everybody has somebody, right? Um, especially in the law enforcement profession or the, the military profession, you know, you rely on your your coworkers to protect you, right? To keep you alive if you're in a bad situation. Dude, it, it's like absurd that you wouldn't trust them, you know, with you being vulnerable about something that's bothering you or showing you showing a side of yourself that you haven't really shown to other people. So I think we need to be there for each other. There has to be that that like organic solution internal to the organization if we're going to uh, put a dent in this because there isn't enough therapists. Like it, there's, it's impossible. You're, we're not going to train enough people and there's not enough incentive for somebody to take on that profession, right? Like you mentioned like what, like maybe they can see 35, 45 people a week or whatever. That's actually crazy in and of itself. That therapist is probably a train wreck because they're, they're shouldering everybody else's emotional baggage. So, you know, we we we, are, we definitely do not have enough of those people doing that thankless job to be able to solve the problem unless we do something about it ourselves. To just give some context of the theory that you have, in October 2021, we had our first Street Cup conference and it was fucking legit, dude. It was tits. We had like uh, Marcus Luttrell came and uh, Dakota Meyer, Tim Kennedy. Like we had a bunch of other, uh, Tommy Laren. Yeah, they're fucking awesome, dude. And I'm, I, you know, it's really cool. Some of the things that I didn't realize was going to happen after having an event like this is that I, be, I would befriend these people. It's very, very nice to, it's, it's a little bit of a humble brag at times too, but uh, you know, it's really cool that I got to meet those people. But when and it's funny, cause we're talking about this tonight. The reason I did go down Atlantic city last night is because we have our annual statewide PBA mini convention. And uh, my friend, Josh Fidel, who was shot in the line of duty in the head in Atlantic city was there. So I had dinner with him and I, I love that guy. Like, like when I tell you, I love him. I love him. He's one of the most, Oh, dude, you should, you just got, everybody's got to meet Josh once. He is something else, dude. And, you know, he walks with complete atrophy. He's like a cripple. He's like, yeah, you like my pimp, my pimp stride. And like, he's crippled. He's got like big atrophy on. It's like, he walks with a complete, yeah. you know, it's not that he's physical impairment. It's just, he has neurological impairment. So, yeah. um, but we, we were talking a lot last night and his friend, Billy, he's doing a nice, a lot of nice work. He was the old deputy chief in Atlantic city. Uh, we're talking about a lot of things. And, you know, I said, Bill, we have this group called the Street Cop Survivors Club, and now I think we have over 200 members. And I go, the price of admission sucks. But in 2021, we honored 32 police officers who were significantly injured in the line of duty, whether it was in a car wreck or a, you know, a knife or fucking gunfire, whatever it may be. And so we did really nice things, brought them all up on stage, gave them this award called the Street Cop Survivor Award. And after, you know, I've, I've been interviewing these people on this podcast for a while, and I hear like people just don't know. People just don't know what it's like. They send me to the VA to talk to people. It's not the fucking same, right? These guys mm -hmm. did get shot, but it's a different context. And Josh talked about this last night. So I brought these guys in. I said, listen, you know, guys, all I'm hearing is the same thing over and over again. So I, what I think we should do at a very minimum is start a Facebook group, right? You're all on Facebook. That's how you all found me. We'll call it the Street Cop Survivors Club. I just had this thing. It just came to me. You guys were all talking. I go, uh, you know, I'll, I'll help you. I can't run the whole thing, but I'll I'll give you guys assistance and guidance. And um, I think collectively, as you guys grow, I think the people who are going to become administrators in the group and somebody who's going to take the the bull by the horns a little bit more will will assume those roles. And they have. There's four or five of them now. 
And dude, they're doing great things. And there's nothing that makes me happier than when I see one of these men or women who literally paid almost the ultimate sacrifice, whose lives have been altered from being shot seven fucking times, right? These guys are in walkers and wheelchairs and dude, they're no yeah. different than military veterans. And they're like, bro, that thing, that, that group saved my life, bro. Like it's the best thing that ever happened. I yeah. get that all the time from these guys. That group saved my life. It's, a, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we, there is a high price of admission. We know a lot of people are in pain and I always remind them, they go, cause they'll call me and say, Hey, this guy wants to come in. What's your thoughts? I go, my thoughts are you're the street cop survivors club, right? I know you guys want to keep it at, you wanted to have significant physical pain. I go, pain's brother is just pain. So let's talk about mental pain as well. Yep. If you got a guy who went through something very, very significant, like maybe responded to a school shooting, saw 20 fucking murdered kids. Yep. Everybody in this fucking profession wears a blue line on their chest. We all stand for the blue line flag. And uh, if that's what we all stand for, then that's your brother in pain. So let's talk about what pain is. You guys have physical pain. Some of you have significant mental pain due to your physical pain. But, you know, the scars that you can see on you are different than the ones you could see on them. So I think that yep. not everybody gets to come into it, you know, but uh, I think somebody like that certainly qualifies to be part of our group. And we try to do a lot of nice things for those guys and girls because they deserve it, because that's who we are as human beings. But it actually proves your theory, dude. The problem is, is, again, it's that trust. Yep. They're putting that wall down and saying, I, I'll step in here. And, you know, they want anonymity. We've tried to run programs we've had multiple physical uh psychotherapists get involved with us as you it's know on the on the, on the on the on the dude listen i'm telling you on the track to to put these classes on nick i'm not lying to you people are like hey you know do you guys think it's important you put it on the, uh, you know on a fast track for mental health and law enforcement you guys are a big entity in law enforcement i said yeah man the problem is we do free classes and nobody comes yeah like could you imagine? So you had, I know we know for a fact that of a hundred guys, twenty-eight are suffering. The class oh, is free. if not more, bro. I mean, I right. can tell you, I, I can tell you the guys, <laughs> half of the guys that I knew that were struggling were suicidal. And I didn't even realize that. I mean, out of a hundred dudes, 50 guys were were at one point ready to take their life. So wow. I, I guarantee you the numbers are even bigger than than we assume. Uh, but yeah, to your point, dude, it's all you just don't trust, right? Like, that's why, like, you got to go to, you just got to be willing to go to somebody that you trust. And it, and it might, I mean, the big groups are great if you can put them together, but to your point, man, like, it's like people don't trust the big groups, right? Even if they know if there's a bunch of former, there's other dudes just like them in the group, they still don't trust. Cause they were like, Hey, maybe there's that one guy that is going to weaponize it against me. And you're so yeah. on the defensive in, in the, in the profession, right? Like you're always worried about like, ah, I got to be careful. I got to be guarded. I don't want it. Like, I, I don't want this used against me because if my career is jeopardized, that means my family's jeopardized and we're all providers. We want to make sure we take care of our own. So like guys will suffer in silence and just like, be like, yeah, I'll just deal with it. But I, my, my urge, I urge people don't just deal with it. Like literally find one person, dude, just find the, the one person that you do trust and be vulnerable with them. Open up to them. Because I guarantee you, if, if you truly trust them, they will not use it against you. They're not going to judge you. Frankly, they'll probably be like, feel liberated themselves because they could actually offload some stuff in your direction as well. It's like a mutually supportive uh, environment, right? Nick, I just had an idea. So last night, um, I got to meet Josh's therapist. Uh, she does work with 
law enforcement exclusively. Uh, Billy uh, Mazur, who is the old deputy chief there, that's what he does now for law enforcement. And I told him last night, like, I, I'll invite you guys on a podcast. I have their numbers. It'd be really cool if we all got back together when I bring them in in person. And we got to chop it up on that front with me, yeah. you, and them too. Do, they're doing really cool work, bro. You're going to like to hear some of the shit they do. Like, they're really, oh, I love it. they've got a lot of funding to get people, like, the, the help they need right away. These yeah. are the people who are, you know, and, and Billy kept saying to me last night, he's like, yeah, I think, you know, dude, thanks for doing what you do. And that I'm like, bro, I, I think it's just us. I think it's just who we are. I know what you're saying. Yeah. But, bro, I mean, you know, everybody's, but just who we are in, in nature of our own beings of. Yeah. We know we can help and we we never turn our back to being able to help. Even even in the internet day and age of people being keyboard warriors, I'm a piece of shit, the whole fucking nine, right? I just don't <laughs> care. I don't care. People asked me last night, we got some bullshit going on with the fucking state of New Jersey here. Like, ah, what's going on with that? I'm like, I don't fucking care, dude. Yeah. Right? We got cops who are not killing themselves because of the work we're doing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not pandering to these fucking assholes. Because I I care more about the men and women in blue. They don't give a rat's ass about you. I know they don't. If they did, they'd actually be doing things to help. I just we are, and you know we've got to suffer the detriment of these these fuckers um, because they're just self serving, dude. They just want to they want to make a name. They're anti police. It's wild shit. Um, but yeah, again, we're human. I think- dude, the thing that people forget, man, is like we are we are literally human beings first, right? You know, we, we, we are so quick to label each other. And when it comes down to it, dude, we, we have the same flesh and blood. It doesn't matter, dude. And like people like they forget that, dude, they label somebody, right? Like label somebody, a police officer. And just because there was a, a bad police officer, this terrible experience, dude, we're imperfect human beings. You're going to now label the entire group as such. I mean, dude, it's, it's, it's crazy Nick, if you, if, to me. If you think about it, it's racism at its finest. It's the same concept, right? I mean, it's dude, the same exact thing. There, there is no room in my life for a, for anybody to cast judgment widely on any group of people for any reason. It's ridiculous. It is no, it is I would no never, different than, yeah. Never do that. In a, I would never do that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a tragedy. Like we are human beings. Like let's let's try to work together as human beings and help each other. You know, we all feel the same feelings. You know, we all deal with the same pain, the same issues emotionally. Like, and we're all out there struggling to survive. So, I mean, it's just, I people get so entrenched in their own ego and their own position and their own agenda. Like, I, I, like, I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like urging people to do like the unthinkable, right? Like come together and actually try to be like good people to each other. But uh, I mean, it's, you got to start small, man. And I think that, you know, if you start small, uh, you, you can do great things, but you, you never can compromise uh, on that reality that we are human beings, regardless of whether you're, you're wearing a uniform or you're wearing civilian attire. It doesn't make a difference, man. We just got to treat each other better. So let's let's do that, dude. Let's get let's do it again. Let's do it again. <laughs> if you're cool with it, we'll fucking uh, we'll bring them in. We'll schedule it up to try to match it with your shit. If yeah. you're cool, we'll come back on, dude. And we'll fucking rock and roll. I, hey, I'd love to. And, and you know what? It'd probably be a good opportunity. I can share some of the, I mean, it's a, a conversation in and of itself, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty out there, um, in a public way about my advocacy for, for the work that's going on in psychedelics right now. Um, and it's an interesting kind of talking on a law enforcement platform. No, dude, some, I think, I think, 
I think these motherfuckers really got to start having open mindedness to this. Like when the yeah when they like made mushrooms legal, like you guys realize it was for like medical purposes, right? But the, but totally, like Fox brother. News made it seem like everybody's gonna be like sitting in the in the <laughs> jungles, like eating mushroom caps, like like a fucking of Washington. Like, dude, this stuff is progression forward, yeah, and bro. you've got to get out of your fucking 1953 mindset. Like, dude, how about this? In New Jersey, as law enforcement now, you can smoke weed. And guys totally. were like, that's absurd. And I'm like, is it? Because I got to tell you, I've been in this game 22 plus years. And you know what I think is absurd? When I go to a tailgating party and I watch mm -hmm. 23 cops from an agency literally drink 18 White Claws, do 12 shots. Yep. And are literally can't walk, throwing up, starting their cars, getting in domestic incidents. I could tell you, man, alcohol is an endemic issue in our community. Obviously, I mean, I, I'll speak from a personal experience. Like, dude, I've watched alcohol destroy so many lives of so many friends. And it's, it's dude, it's it's legal. So it's just okay, right? Right. right. Um, it, it's the only drug that if you refuse, you're a fucking square, right? Totally, man. And it could destroy your life. You know, it kills more people in this country than like anything else, right? Dude, I got to tell you, I, 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 if you gave me an option, I had to pick one or the other, I would say you got to forfeit booze and uh, bring the weed out. But I don't know if I can dance as good on weed, though. I don't smoke it, <laughs> right? Because, like, and by the way, I also know that I can't dance as good on alcohol. I just think I can. Totally. And then I see myself on video the next day, and I'm like, can you please not show that to me? Yeah, it's like. Well, to take it full circle, brother, yeah, there's progress being made. And I, I'll tell you, you know, the progress being made in the realm of psychedelic medicine uh, as a catalyst to get people on the right path and allow people to unpack the stuff they've been, they've been suppressing emotionally for years is uncanny. Nothing else like it in my experience. Um, and frankly, I mean, I don't know if me and a lot of my friends would be here if it weren't for uh, some of these compounds. So I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of them. I, I can't think of another community that is more closely related to the military than the law enforcement community. And dude, if it's working for us, I guarantee you that the law enforcement community would flourish um, if they were given the opportunity to have these experiences in a controlled fashion where it's legal and they don't have to compromise their career or their retirement. Um, it's just a tragedy that, you know, we got to go to go to Mexico or Costa Rica in order to seek treatment for trauma that's that's uh, inflicted in this country on us right mm -hmm. so crazy to me so yeah i would love to have a deeper conversation on that and uh and the wonderful people that are doing the the tough work on the the trauma front with law enforcement officers i i think it would be killer would love to do it anyway um all right dude, we'll it. set it up with frankie and I, it was real awesome meeting you dude thank you so much yeah. for everything likewise dennis i'll see you dude take care later brother Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then you could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher, so you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum, going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.